Welcome. Thanks for joining us. This is the GBV Information Management System, the GBV IMS, the podcast where we talk about safe, ethical, useful GBV data management in humanitarian settings. I'm Caroline Masbunji, and I'm joined today by Sonia Rastogi, GBV Knowledge Management Specialist with UNICEF and also part of the GBV Guidelines team. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much. Um, so today we will discuss about how GBVIMS intersects with risk mitigation and the work of non-GBV sectors. Um, so Sonia has a long-lasting experience working on GBV risk mitigation and is here to speak about her work in, on the GBV guidelines and on other initiatives that she has been leading on. So Sonia, could you start uh, by uh, giving us a presentation of your role and what you have been working on so far. Sure, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so I would definitely like to share with listeners a little bit about the GBV risk mitigation work that has been going on in the last couple of years. Uh, my role is at the interagency level to be a part of the GBV guidelines implementation support team, where we do interagency rollouts for GBV risk mitigation, and also within UNICEF to further um, institutionalize our risk mitigation work uh, within our country offices, within our programming and our, our cluster and coordination level uh, role. And what we have been doing on the risk mitigation side has over the last, since the launch of the GBV guidelines in 2015, has been to really uh, operationalize and articulate and ground truth these guidelines and recommendations around risk mitigation for non-GBV sectors. So food security, wash, shelter, um, etc. And we've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years in terms of um, increasing awareness and understanding among practitioners and among um, different humanitarian actors on why risk mitigation is important. We've made a lot of progress as well on supporting different models of, of interventions, so different packages of risk mitigation interventions, highlighting um, safe and ethical practices of consultations with women and girls, and so on, um, safety audits and various different uh, modalities and activities for different sectors. Uh, the piece that I'd like to highlight on this podcast is that we have, we recognized a bit of a gap maybe about two years ago that we were really um, getting a lot of progress with what GBV risk mitigation is. People understood it, people were buying into it, people taking it up. But the question we had was, how do we know if it's working? In my program, how do I know if this combination of actions is actually helping me achieve my own goals, my own outcomes, or is making anything um, safer or better for women and girls um, and other groups? So in order to really answer this question um, and to get more concrete on uh, sort of a, a methodology or an approach that we could firmly stand behind in terms of how to measure effectiveness of risk mitigation within programming. Um, we embarked on a partnership with Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. So UNICEF and Harvard Humanitarian Initiative have been in uh, a two-year partnership. We're in our second year right now. Um, and, you know, I do want to highlight how much this partnership sits on a foundation of creativity from colleagues in the field around what they've tried to pilot in terms of measurement modalities. So we really um, saw this 
partnership as a way to take stock and look at the literature as well around how to measure risk in general, um, how to also measure perceptions of safety. Um, so looking at what what is some best practices, whether in the development space or emergency space. Um, so I think that tangibly this looks like measuring effectiveness of risk mitigation looks at different components of a program that contribute to safer services, both in the programming and in the environment, especially for women and girls. And um, this may be better better measurement, better disaggregated data on access to service, looking at satisfaction a little bit further, utilization of services, privacy, et cetera. But again, it's also really including and better understanding how do we ask about perceptions of safety through consultations with women and girls themselves? How do we, um, for example, questions like, has the access to a water point or a cash distribution point become safer? What do you fear if you're returning from a nutrition center to your home? We really wanted to unpack this, this piece of the puzzle more. So we're looking at how to um, really measure mitigation actions to improve sector outcomes and if they're improving safety. So these are all done through proxies because with risk mitigation, you can't measure something that hasn't happened and it would be unethical to do so. So right now we have a set of resources that we've developed with, with Harvard and um, colleagues from the field and our advisory group. We have a guidance note for practitioners and also a menu of measures, quantitative and qualitative measures that we're hoping to field test this year in 2020. Um, these materials are designed with practitioners in mind. So they're designed for routine monitoring and evaluation within programs with a faster timeline of, of results turnarounds. Um, and we're also looking at what a more robust impact evaluation could look like. Thank you, this sounds fascinating. Um, and so picking up on this partnership between Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and, and UNICEF on the field testing methodology uh, to measure safety perception. Um, I see clear intersections here with the GBVIMS and our GBV response work in general. Um, so, for example, understanding safety perception of women and girls can help um, improve access to GBV services. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so we're definitely in the early days of developing this, this methodology and approach to measuring risk mitigation. There is not, um, you know, um, unfortunately, and we, we kind of knew this when we started, but there's not a lot of literature, whether it's published or gray literature out there on safety perceptions. Um, we've seen some information on safety perceptions in uh, urban design, for example. So there may be looking at the built environment um, and how people interact with that built environment and make decisions based on risks that they're perceiving. So I, I think we're really hoping to fill the gaps with this, this research and this project, see how this approach can be operationalized in emergencies and also explore um, with, with real attention and, and diligence and um, the highest level of integrity to the challenges and safety concerns that can go with exploring safety perceptions with women and girls, especially in crisis, um, especially um, when the right safeguards are not in place. So I think measuring safety perceptions is, is really a core 
um, piece of measuring safety perceptions is consulting women and girls um, and, and other groups of interest to a program on their perceived change and how safe they feel accessing a service, participating in an activity, or being part of a decision-making um, forum, like a camp governance structure, for example. So we're working on what set of, of questions. Uh, they can be quantitative questions that form part of a a more formal survey, or they can be qualitative questions that are sort of woven into existing participatory approaches or um, focus group discussions or other sort of group consultations um, that can be used to get a more accurate sense of these of these perceptions. Um, because asking about safety is very objective. And when we're thinking about how to make programming safer, um, someone who's responding about their perception of safety, even if we try to really sort of hone in on, on what changed in a nutrition program and it does that make you feel safer, the person responding, um, of course, is dealing with so many other priorities and realities in their life, and they um, may not necessarily be able to untangle how that risk mitigation action made them safer or not safer, depending on what else is going on. So I think that we hope that um, safety perceptions information, especially because risk mitigation is a, is a non-specialist um, approach, that this information can be combined with other sources of routine monitoring that non-GBV programs are collecting, whether that's on service barriers, um, such as access or um, satisfaction or, or well-being, and be analyzed and interpreted to give a sense of for example, mobility, where do women and girls feel like they can go? Where do they perceive they can go? Or where do they choose to go knowing the risks? What risks are they willing to take? Why and why not? Um, and to really be able to provide services in the highest quality and the safest um, ability possible. So this information can be used in addition to um, GBV's response and specialized programming data. I can be triangulated together and interpreted together to get a fuller sense of the safety um, of an environment and, and movement considerations in particular. I think that is quite a strength. Also, um, the combination of the safety perceptions information and, and GBV programming data can also be used to understand um, further and, and better in a, in a richer way, what services are appropriate, accepted, what services feel comfortable and safe, um, what are the components of those services? Is it design? Is it layout? Um, is it the um, gender of the provider of services? Is it having childcare available? Is it menstrual hygiene management equipped and compliant latrines? So these are many things that we, we know intuitively at a theory level, um, and we'd really like to be able to um, have that be in measurement form in order for programs to make good decisions. Thanks so much, Sonia. And I think this is um, this is one area already where we could see intersections with GBVIMS data as we're collecting information that can inform us uh, on like access to services and so on. And this triangulated with this piece of work would be already incredibly uh, useful and insightful to um, to improve uh, access to services so I, I, I wanted to um, to continue on that on that um, issues of like how to uh, improve access to services for GBV survivors 
Um, and so uh, zooming out to uh, looking at the risk mitigation work uh, more generally, um, in your opinion or in your experience, what could be the role of non-GBV specialists of other sectors in ensuring access to services for GBV survivors? Sure. Great question. Um, my, to me, non-GBV specialists have two very critical, important roles. Um, the first and foremost is to make sure that affected communities and all of their diversity, um, and from a GBV perspective, especially women and girls, have safe, dignified, and appropriate and acceptable from a a culture or gender and age perspective um, access to services. So when it comes to survivors of GBV, they also have a very important role to play in ensuring that their services are not causing further harm or not exacerbating existing inequalities um, in the in, in the environment that they're working in and that they're safe with well-equipped frontline workers who can who are trained and know how to safely refer a survivor to services. So we know that um, Many of our non-GBV colleagues working in food security and WASH and health have a far greater geographic footprint in humanitarian response than um, specialized GBV services do. They're out in um, communities daily in hard-to-reach areas doing distributions. They're really trying to reach uh, many communities um, affected and immediately by a disaster or, an, or a crisis. And they consistently are interfacing with communities on a very, uh, very uh, regular basis and also many people in the community as well, whether it is for um, getting information on from a survey, from an assessment, or forming different community-based groups for uh, consultations and so on. And so being able to carry these two pieces of ensuring safe access and being able to um, support survivors access uh, the, the services that they need is such a critical part of their role and a huge contribution to, to humanitarian response. This is so true. Um, and so to be a little bit more specific, do you have any example of um, how working with non-GBV specialists has improved access of women and girls to services? Absolutely. Um, I can give an example from, from Nigeria, from Northeast Nigeria. Um, it's some of the work that the GBV guidelines implementation support team uh, provided technical support to colleagues who were working on nutrition programming um, and partners who are working on nutrition programming in Northeast Nigeria. And we were working with, um, with colleagues and a, and a partner there to use consultations with women and girls to um, really figure out what the um, disconnect was between available nutrition services and sort of a lack of accessing of those nutrition services or uh, initial uh, an, an initial touch point of women and girls with the service, but then a dropout. So they were looking at uh, how to use consultations to really get to the core of that they had um, communication campaigns, they had uh, the whole set of engagement around um, nutrition IEC materials, why this is important, really had done a lot of due diligence on um, nutrition needs. Um, so they were looking to, due to those consultations, um, a couple things came to light. One is that 
the nu nutrition facilities were too far. They were in um, locations where women and girls felt they could not safely access due to armed conflict or due to potential moving armed groups um, and different informal and formal armed groups. And um, they also expressed that um, there, for some women and girls, there was a prevention of them going to those services because male partners and, and family members did not want them to, did not want them to travel that far, um, didn't, didn't want them to stay for prolonged periods of time um, at that location, or so a restriction on their mobility, or when returning home from nutrition services, there's uh, tension in the home and intimate partner violence that could have occurred because they were out at those services, maybe for a prolonged period of time or unable to take care of their other caretaking responsibilities. And so this was a huge reason why um, women and girls couldn't go. Uh, so in addition to moving nutrition facilities to closer locations to some of these affected um, communities so that they were in distance closer and to make the walk closer. There was also with women and girls increased communication efforts to explain to communities um, and, and in that way in, to catch male partners in those communications efforts to explain the importance of nutrition services and why women, girls, and boys should go, what they get when they go to those services, how it benefits the broader family, the broader community, um, and also trying to really safely and, and sensitively try to understand what concerns male partners had about not allowing women and girls to go to nutrition centers or why those potential tensions were sort of erupting. Um, and so these changes didn't mitigate all of the risks. Um, I mean, it was there was still safety concerns being in an armed conflict, very active armed conflict area. Um, and you know, general issues with having to travel um, along these routes. But th these types of changes, there, there was some, um, through routine monitoring, there was some change in terms of qualitative feedback that a lot of the nutrition mother-to-mother -mother groups and adolescent girl groups were providing to, uh, to the service provider. And um, there was also an increased number of um, registrations to OTP um, sites, for example. So that was positive. This is such a great example, Sonia. Thank you so much for this. Um, and so I'd like to bring it back to the GBVIMS. Um, you and I talked about the fact that intersections between the GBVIMS and non-GBV sectors, including risk mitigation work, has been limited so far to our knowledge. Um, however, there are clear intersections that we see. Um, so maybe to give an example to the listeners, um, the GBIMS um, collects information about where reported incident took place, so specific location where the incidents uh, took place. This could uh, indicate trends related to incidents taking place, for instance, in um, latrines or showers in camps or at border crossing. Um, it can help understanding risks that women and girls are facing. However, GBV actors might have, um, as you previously mentioned, very little capacity or outreach to create a more secure environment for women and girls in this specific location. That being said, uh, they could uh, advocate and work alongside 
wash actors to reduce these risks um, of incidents taking place in latrines or showers. Um, so wash actors could, for example, improve uh, lighting, uh, ensure sex, uh, segregated latrines for women and girls. Um, in order for them to feel safer, um, all of these recommendations being included in the GBV guidelines. So um, that being said, um, this our, these decisions uh, require an in-depth analysis of GBV-IMS data um, and requires GBV-IMS actors and GBV actors in general reaching out to other sectors and to non-GBV specialists to support this analysis to enable them to make these changes to their programming and advocacy. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that there's... Um... There's a lot of, of potential to further explore how different data points within the GBV IMS can, over, can overlap and be used to triangulate information with, for example, a non-GBV sector's routine um, data where we hope that they're also collecting information on, on access and, and mobility, um, of course, tailored to their program. I think in particular, this, the spatial piece, this, the spatial information recorded in the IMS um, or also other data points on service access can really shed a light on how um, a, a collective humanitarian response with information that is coming from multiple uh, multiple directions. We know that, for example, GBV programming definitely uh, gets a very deep understanding of, of issues from survivors and women and girls. And we know that, for example, other, other sector programs such as shelter get a diversity of perspectives around, around access and places of, of risk in the environment for GBV, for example. So if we're able to really combine, combine them and to look at things a little bit more holistically, we can have a better sense. Um, it's, it, We'll never be we'll never be perfect, but we'll have a better sense of how the collective humanitarian response can make a safer, more enabling environment for affected communities. And as I've mentioned before, from our perspective with risk mitigation, especially for women and girls. So we know that um, I think the other piece is that we know that GBV response services are difficult for survivors to access, even when there is no emergency um, for many different reasons whether they are physical access barriers or, or otherwise, including stigma. So, we, so understanding access information more broadly gives part of the picture as to the obstacles that women and girls are facing when accessing services. Um, I think also this, the location information, um, access information can provide more insight into risks themselves, risks of GBV itself. So whether we're, um, and again, making sure that things are fully aggregated and, and, and de-identified and so on, um, whether we're looking at um, spatial data that happens in a public place, like you said, a latrine or a shower or happening in the private space of the home. So we're looking more at um, violence in the home and intimate partner violence and how to go about mitigating these risks. So for example, if I'm a non-GBV specialist and um, I'm basically hearing this, this key message that from our data, we're seeing a lot of violence happening in the home. Um, if I want to do a cash program, for example, I very much have to think about how that cash program is going to change dynamics in the household. And we know, um, based on data in the setting and 
global data that intimate partner violence is the most prevalent form. So we can really use this, these types of information systems um, to our advantage to make stronger programs across the board and to design a program that does not exacerbate already present risks. This is so great. I love the fact that um, we're able to um, draw a picture of what it would look like to have stronger collaboration between GBDMS actors and non-GBD specialists um, and to have them work hand in hand to reduce risks faced by women and girls towards gender-based violence. So thank you so, so much, Sonia, for this discussion and your great insights um, on how to approach um, intersections between GBVIMS and other sectors. It has been really great to have you um, on this podcast to discuss um, on how the GBVIMS data can be useful for non-GBV actors. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. So thank you everyone for listening. Um, and as always, be responsible with your data and learn more at gbvims.com.